Hi and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Um, yeah, so an Irishman is walking up the street and, and he stops to ask someone what the time it was. And they told him it was 4 p.m. So the Irishman, with a puzzled look on his face, replied, You know, it's the weirdest thing. I've been asking that question all day, and each time I get a different answer. Uh, this morning, I hope there aren't any Irishmen in here. <laughs> uh, but this morning, we're going to focus on something that we're all familiar with. We're, we're, I, I want to talk a bit about time, and, and, and time is important to us. In fact, much of our lives are governed by time. We wake up in the morning and almost the first thing we look at is the, at least I do anyway, um, every morning as I struggle to open my eyes and peer at the clock to see if I can sneak a few more hours of sleep and hit that snooze button. We go to bed, it's the same thing, isn't it? And the last thing we look at is the, the, the clock, the time, because we want to know how much time we have to sleep. We go to work or school maybe, and uh, we're often looking at the clock to see what the time is. At morning tea or recess, our stomachs are grumbling, telling us that it's time to eat. So much of our lives are governed by time. So it would be fair to say that time is an important part of our lives. As we come to the book of Haggai this morning, we find that time was important to Haggai also because Haggai begins this book by telling us the time in which he preached this particular sermon. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth, sixth month on the first day of the month. Translated, that simply means that the time was the 29th of August, 520 B.C. What's interesting about that? Well, it tells us that this all happened in real time. This isn't make-believe. It, it's not a fairy tale. It's real stuff. This all actually took place and it's been preserved for us by the Lord so that we might gain greater understanding and deeper faith as we see how God dealt with his people in times gone by. It's been preserved by the Lord for us that we might love him more because that's his desire for us. He created us to be worshippers. He created us to be lovers of him. But sadly, many fall in and fail in this area to love the Lord with all their hearts, minds and strength. We all fall way short and it's all because it fell apart at the seams when Adam and Eve did the unthinkable and disobeyed God. So since that day, God has been playing second fiddle to our desire to love ourselves more than we love him. And this was the case of the people Haggai was preaching to. And you know, as you read the history of Israel, 
you can't help but think what went wrong for these people. I mean, if you want to sum up the history of Israel, read the book of Judges. And there's the repeated phrase throughout the book of Judges and that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And right at the end of the book of Judges, we have this phrase. We have this phrase, and it just sums up really the heart of the people at the time. That they did what was right in their eyes. So the, the, the history of Israel is not a good history. In fact, it's a terrible history. What went wrong for these people? I mean, these people had it made. They were God's chosen people for that time. For that particular purpose, they, they were chosen because God had promised that to them. God promised that they would be blessed and that through them the world would be blessed. God had previously promised that as long as the Ark of the Covenant went before them, things would be good for the people. And they would win unthinkable battles against the foe, sometimes twice their number and sometimes twice their size and strength. I mean, these people fought giants and dealt with them. Why? Because they trusted the Lord who was present with them through the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to be in front of the people wherever they went. And so in a very real way, God was leading his people and they were happy followers. But not always. So when you study the history of Israel, you soon see a people who were misbehaving pretty badly. And really, that's the point of the book of Haggai. Haggai is preaching to the post-exilic people. These are the people who had come back into the promised land after spending 70 years as captives in Babylon. Why were they captives in Babylon? Because God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, to to smash down the walls and take the people captive. Why? Because their hearts had gone hard to God. And so God raises up Nebuchadnezzar, a non-Jew, to do his bidding for him. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes in and he, he annihilates Israel. Not once, but twice takes the people captive and for 70 years they they are there as captives in Babylon and then Cyrus rises up from Persia and uh, he battles with the Babylonians and he defeats them and now he's the reigning empire he is the king of the world but God had a work on Cyrus like he did on Nebuchadnezzar and God raised up Cyrus to do what? Take his people back to the promised land. Just like he had promised. 70 years in captivity. After that they would return. And they did. God keeps his promise. So here they are returning 
on the by the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia, by the will of God. Well, actually, by the sovereign decree of God, not by the sovereign decree of Cyrus. He was just God's puppet in it all. And the people returned to do what? To reestablish the worship of God in Jerusalem. So Cyrus gives these people all they need to rebuild the temple. You'll find it in Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 1 through to chapter 6. And, and he gives them all they need to rebuild the temple. This is a, a non-Jew supporting the work of God so that God would be glorified. It's an amazing story. And they get going and they get building on the, the temple, but then they face opposition. Because, I don't know if you know the history, but when, when Israel were taken captive, some people stayed behind. Some people weren't taken along with all the captives. Some were actually left behind. And most people who were left behind, they sort of integrated with foreigners. And in the end, they were moved north to a place called Samaria. And there they, they established themselves. So these Samaritans were kind of like, you know, they had half-blood in them, uh, half-Jews and half-foreigners. And anyway, they come on the scene and they want to help with the building of the, the temple. They want to help to rebuild the temple. But the Jews are wise. So no, 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 we, we're not going to let you do that. We, we don't need your help. We don't want to taint the work of God in the temple. And so the Samaritan people, they get very upset. And uh, they sort of concoct this plan. And they talk to one of the governors, Tadanai. And, uh, and one of his friends, and they say, look, these, these people are trying to withhold the, the taxes for the king. So Pat and I has a talk to the king at the time, and they say, well, they come up with another decree that the building of the temple should stop. And so the, the rebuilding of the temple kind of got started, but then it came to a halt until the riots came on there and the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. That's why that time is important. It tells us that this is real. This is what really happened. And so that's the point of Haggai. It's the reestablishing and the rebuilding of the temple. And so timing is important because what it tells us is that Darius was king and it was according to his decree that the people could re resume the building of the temple. Take a look at verse 1 again where it says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this tells us that the leaders had become passive and complacent. And so God begins his rebuke with the leaders. Now these guys weren't just anyone. These were the leaders of Israel. We have Zerubbabel the governor and we have Joshua the high priest. They were the equivalent of Scott Morrison and the Archbishop of Adelaide. 
These guys took care of the people's physical and spiritual needs. These guys were God's men chosen by God to not just care for his people, but more important, to get them focused on him. They were God's representatives in God's affairs. And you know, it's always been God's intention to have leaders over his people. However, some people look at 1 Samuel 8 and claim that it was never God's idea to put a king in place to rule over his people. That was the, the people's idea. They, they looked at the nations around them and they said, we want a king like all the nations around us. And some people say that, well, there you go. It was never God's intention to have a king over his people. They just, he just wanted them to all be on the same level. Israel wanted a king to rule over them, all right, just like the nations around them had a king. In other words, they wanted a king according to the other nations' idea of what a king should be like and not according to God's idea of what a king should be like. And you know what? It's no different in churches today, is it? Churches who look for leaders, they want someone who fits the bill of a manager or a CEO rather than a, a spiritual leader. They want someone who can make people feel good about themselves rather than someone who will challenge people about their continued fallenness and as a result their continued need for Jesus Christ. He is our hope, our only hope, our only saviour. Nothing else will ever save you or me. Only Christ. And so they want someone who can manage people effectively rather than someone who recognises their, their, their total inability to do so without the Lord Jesus like David did. As he saw the Lord always before him. They want someone with the fine looks, the higher education, the business awards rather than the unsophisticated, lowly educated Barely ordinary guy whose only acknowledgement is the fact that he's saved and he is sustained purely by the grace of God. So Israel wanted a king just like the other nations and churches want a pastor just like the world seeks after a CEO, a manager or prime minister. But God wants a heart after his own. God made provision for a king way back in Deuteronomy 14 and 15 where it says when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it and then say I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. It's a warning against putting non-Christians into leadership. But it's also a reminder that God is the one who chooses leaders. It's calling. And that's why we never put a non-Christian or someone who has no heart for the Lord in church leadership. And so God rebukes the leaders here in the book of Haggai. And this is what he says. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, 
these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so the Lord through Haggai identifies the problem. He identifies the problem of the leaders of Israel. The Lord said to the leaders, these people are saying something. You are listening to these people. You see, the rebuke to the leaders was due to the fact that the leaders had given in to the whims of the people. That's the rebuke. The people were directing things and unfortunately the leaders had succumbed to their whims and their wants. The people were saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Rather than heeding to the word of the Lord, the leaders were heeding to the word of the people. You see that? The people were making decisions which had dire consequences for Israel. You know, church leadership can be a juggling act. If you've ever been a pastor or an elder or in church leadership, you would know what I'm talking about. Church leadership can be a juggling act. Church leaders need to be, need, they need to hear the people, but they must at the same time heed the word of the Lord. Oftentimes, heeding to the Lord will contradict the thoughts of the people. Oftentimes, the answers our people want aren't always consistent with the will of God. So it's a juggling act. This is important to understand whether you are in leadership or not. You see, church leadership is not like the leadership you find in politics. Politicians are voted in. They are elected by the people. Therefore, politicians are responsible to the people. And in a democratic society, ideally, the politicians are directed by the wants and the needs of the people. In a corporate role, a leader is more autocratic. That is, they assume power and control. They pay the wages, therefore they have the most say, and the people do as they are told, right? If you ever work for anyone, you know that's true. If you don't do what they want, guess what happens? You're out of a job. However, in the church, we are not democratic, and we are not autocratic, but we are a theocratic community. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, we are a theocracy. Theocracy simply means God rules. So we are a theocracy whereby God rules and God determines the rules of engagement. Therefore, it's incumbent upon all God's people that we understand that church leadership is God-focused, it's Christ-centered, it's spirit-led through his word, and that it, that it is this before it can ever be people-oriented. It must be God-focused before it can ever be people-oriented. If you get it around the wrong way, you end up in a mess like this. You end up in a mess like the book of Haggai, where the leaders and the people were rebuked. God's leaders 
and people must guard the church from becoming seeker-sensitive. We must protect the church from getting its cues from not only non-Christians, but also those who claim to be seeking God. In other words, we aren't to design the church around catering to the need of the seeker. That's becoming people-focused. Who may come and, and they may come along and say things like, oh, that sermon made me feel horrible because all he could say was that I was a sinner. Oh boy, he just preaches on and on and on, doesn't he? Doesn't he know what time it is? And we've got to be careful in guarding the church against that kind of stuff. This is God's church. And he has a plan for his church and he has a design for his church and he's given it to us. Just like David had a plan and a design for the temple. And he said he was led by the Spirit. There was the Spirit giving that to him. So we must protect the church from getting its cues from not only non-Christians but also those who claim to be seeking God. In other words, we, we aren't to design the church around catering to the need of the seeker who may come and say those kinds of things. We must be faithful to the Lord and to his word if we are to guard the church. We must heed to the Lord. So Haggai says, these people say. Notice that. He says, these people, rather than using the possessive covenantal pronoun, which would be my people, the Lord says, these people, and not my people. The Lord uses the third person pronoun, these people, which in the eyes of the Jewish people was a rebuke. God had distanced himself from these people. Instead of my people having possession, it's mine. Do you understand that? That word these is very important. Well, every word in the Bible is very important. There's not a word in the Bible that's not important. You know that there are different forms of discipline, don't you? Some parents will use the wooden spoon. Is that still legal today? Uh, some the plastic, plastic whacker. I remember I met a lady from America and Lani and I met this uh, couple and she had a plastic, plastic whacker. It was, had a shape of a little hand and it was a plastic thing. It didn't leave a mark. <laughs> uh, some people will use, you know, daddy's big black leather belt. I think that's banned too these days. And But nowadays I think people will tend to use the timeout technique or the time-in technique. Let's see, the time-in or time-out. But discipline can be varied, right? But its goal, its goal should always be to bring about obedience and repentance. God disciplines those he, and it's his goal is always to bring about obedience and repentance. If you're not being obedient to God and you've turned away from him, you may suffer discipline for it. You are his child. If you're not suffering discipline for it, then I guess the other obvious thing is you may not be his child. And so, but discipline is varied. And, you know, we, we get the idea of discipline from the Bible, which means we get it from God. And so used with wisdom and with love, discipline can be an effective tool to bring about a right response. And in the story of Israel, we find that God dishes out quite a lot of discipline. You've read the Old Testament. It's just 
It's just a downward spiral for the people of Israel. And God is continually disciplining them, which means he must love them. Israel was so naughty that God had to keep smacking them because they were so hard in the heart. In the book of Ezekiel, we see a picture of just how naughty they'd become. Ezekiel chapter 8 and from verse 7, and here in this passage from Ezekiel, we read how the, the prophet was taken up by the Spirit of God and given visions of Israel's demise from uh, being a blessed people to being a cursed people. And in verse 7 of chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel, we read this, And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in, and I saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jezaniah the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? Well, they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said to me, also, you will see still greater abominations than they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Temaz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the, the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Folks, the temple had become a place of idolatry. In fact... It had become a brothel. And the leaders kept prostitutes in the temple because they believed the drought and the famines that they were experiencing were due partly to the fact that God was no longer with them. That the presence of God had left Israel. And I just want to say something here on that. You know, we talk about the presence of God departing. Ichabod. We talk about Ichabod in that way when the glory of God departs. And we see that here in the book of Ezekiel. In other words, when the, the presence of God isn't felt in a church or in a Christian's life, we say, well, the, the presence of God isn't here. The Holy Spirit's not here. I want to say that I, I, I struggle with that. 
I struggle to believe that. Because as I've read through the book of Haggai, the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, Jeremiah, etc., as I've read through the, the Old Testament and New Testament, I've seen a different God. I see a God who never leaves his chosen people. I see a God who never forsakes his people. And so I struggle to believe that the God who cannot lie would promise Joshua that he would never leave him, nor would he forsake him, would actually renege on his word. I struggle to believe that the scriptures would teach that nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus and then Ichabod. And I struggle when I hear people say, you know, we need to call upon God to come, to be here. Because I believe he's already here. Don't get me wrong, I do believe that there are situations in churches and people such as false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing where the presence of God is definitely not present in a positive way. But we're talking about the God of the universe who is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is an omnipresent God. That's the God I'm talking about. What I believe happens is that it's not that God isn't present with us, but that we aren't present with him. I want to say that because I would hate to think that my God would be unfaithful, that my God would lie. And I think I would be happier to think that I am the unfaithful one and I am the liar. See, that's not my God. When Israel sinned, God didn't depart. He was always there. He is always present. He is a constant. He never leaves, nor does he forsake. And so you have to reconcile that with who God is and with who we are as finite people. And it's the same in the church. God never leaves us, nor will he forsake us, even though it may seem that way. The truth is it's us who leave and it's us who forsake him. And gosh, he is so full of grace that he puts up with it. In verse 12 of Ezekiel chapter 8, we read this, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? As if they thought they could hide from God? <laughs> How many people think that? Close the door, shut the windows, pull down the blinds, turn off the light. God can't see me. Oh, he can see. He knows your thoughts before you even think it. And you give thanks to him for his grace that you get to breathe another breath of life. I say again, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. To repeat it, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They kept prostitutes in the temple and they would sleep with them. And the reason why they slept with them was because they believed this would arouse the Baals, you know, the, the pagan gods. This would arouse the pagan gods and this would cause the rain to fall on the land. Because at the time the lamb was experiencing drought and they believed the Lord had forsaken them so they turned to another God. And so these elders, these, these spiritual men kept prostitutes to arouse the Baals and to arouse the pagan gods in order that they might get excited and cause the rain to fall on the land and fertilize the land. This is how depraved the people of Israel were. 
They were trusting in other gods for their provision rather than their God, the true God. And so God in mercy warns the people of his intentions if they fail to repent, to turn to God. Time and time again, the prophets come along and warn the people, don't they? Jeremiah, Isaiah, the big ones. And the people wouldn't listen. You know the great Shema, the book of Deuteronomy, you're not the Shemaris. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. And that's, that's so important to the Jewish people, the Shema. They hold that in high esteem because it means listen and obey. But they have forgotten to listen and to obey. <clears throat> so God's patience wears thin and Israel are disciplined. If you're a parent here today, then you would know all about the time out thing. Your kid does something naughty, you send them in the room for time out. And you determine when that time is up. Israel basically got a 70-year time out. They were invaded by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, who God raised up as his tool of judgment on Israel and also his tool of grace and mercy. And they lay waste to the city and destroy the temple and the people are taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. And after that 70-year period, they find themselves back in Israel confronted with the task of rebuilding the temple that they had once forsaken, that they had once abused. Take a look at verse 2 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, I remember when I first learned to tell the time. I can still remember that. Uh, it was quite a difficult process and made more difficult because back then uh, we didn't have digital watches or digital clocks. We, we had the, you know, the analog thing with the, the hand that moved around the little numbers. So telling the time was quite a you know, difficult task for me as a young fellow growing up and learning how to tell the time. Um, now I realised I, I wasn't alone in my lack of ability in telling the time. You see, Israel had the, the same problem. They too couldn't tell the time. They were saying the time hasn't come to rebuild the temple. They couldn't tell the time. And so God doesn't only rebuke the leaders, but he also rebukes the people for their faithlessness. He says, these people as opposed to my people. Oh, I would hate that to happen to me. I'm sure you would hate that to happen to you. I'm sure that causes you to tremble at the thought that God might say, you're part of these people rather than my people. But he does that with these people. He doesn't just rebuke the leaders, but he re rebukes the people. You know, even a heathen like the Persian king Cyrus, who initially allowed Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, even Cyrus was able to tell God's time. Have a look at Israel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 
says there, verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Remember that? He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And God stirred his spirit up. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Even the heathen Cyrus knew what the time was, right? For God's house to be built, but God's people didn't. And instead they were fussing over what? Look at verses 3 to 6 of Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came to the, by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? I think it's pretty obvious. Isn't it? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have, you, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does it to, to put them into a bag with holes. It's funny, eh? You know, you get paid one week and it's gone by the end of the week. <laughs> so you go back to work again. And it just keeps going around and around and around in a cycle, doesn't it? Never satisfied. Never. You know, if Haggai were some reality TV show, then it would be called something like Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> because that's all the people were concerned about. Better Homes and Gardens. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses? Well, this house lies and ruins. Here's the result of what happens when your focus shifts from the things of God and you become consumed by the, the things that should take second place or even third place. These people were more concerned about their physical welfare and prosperity rather than their spiritual welfare and sadly, that's no different for today. I'm not saying that your physical welfare isn't important. You've got to eat. You've got to drink. What I'm saying is that it should always play second fiddle to the things of God. Your spiritual life is more important. Eating and drinking doesn't get you to home in heaven. It's not that God is some control freak who's bent on getting us to, to bow down to him in an oppressive manner. But he is the God who cares and knows that when we fail to worship him, then we will quite easily worship anything else. You take God out of the picture and we just simply gravitate towards another little g-god quite easily. The God has created in us that we should be worshippers and lovers. Originally to worship him and to love him. 
since that horrible day when Adam and Eve did the unthinkable and disobeyed God, we've been seeking to satisfy the worshipper and lover within us, with everything but God. I mean, ask yourself, where do you spend most of your time? Ask yourself, where do you spend most of your money? You know, our time and our money belong to the Lord. The question isn't how much of my time and money shall I give to the Lord. The question is how much of my time and money shall I keep back for myself. Why? Because my time and my money belongs to the Lord anyway. King David, in making preparations for Solomon's task to build the first temple, gave abundantly out of his treasury. And he declared this in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, Lord. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. It's his time. It's his money for his purposes. Now, I don't want to put anyone on a guilt trip here, but is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins. In chapter 1, verse 14, Haggai says this, And the Lord stirred up the Spirit, just like he stirred up Cyrus. And the Lord stirred up the Spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the Spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the Spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 15, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. We're told here that God gave a kind nudge to motivate the people into getting to work on the temple. Might not have felt kind. <laughs> Might have sounded pretty harsh. But I don't want to put anyone on a guilt trip here this morning and I'm sure if you're a child of God then it's not a guilt trip that you're on. Amen? But it's a stirring of the Spirit. Amen? There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. There's a difference between a guilt trip and a stirring of the Spirit. God stirs His people. Are you feeling stirred this morning? That's not me stirring. It's probably God. I just want to ask us this question and, and um, as we close. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? Just like our time and money is, doesn't belong to us, it's the Lord's anyway. So we don't belong to ourselves. We've been paid for with a price. We belong to the Lord. Now I just want to ask this question. In what shape is the temple of God that is us, that is you? In what shape are you in? Are you lying in ruins? And do you need to be rebuilt? 
Is it a holy dwelling? Is it separated to the Lord? Or are there idols in our temple just like they were in Ezekiel's temple that we're worshipping, that we need to kill, that we need to put to death? Are we building the temple within us through a constant devotion to the Word of God and in prayer? Are we making the most of the time that we have through committed devotion to the Lord and His Word and in prayer? Because if you're not, you're lying in ruins. Secondly, what about the temple called the church? This church. Are we using our time and money as though they belong to us and not the Lord? Are we determining how much we should give because based on whether I get it my way or not? Or are we satisfied that it belongs to the Lord before he deserves all of it? And I just need to hold back enough to survive. Are we edifying one another with the gifts God has given us in order that we would build one another up in our love for the Lord? As the, as the worship team come up, I just want you to spend some time reflecting on those questions, reflecting on what's been said today. And uh, I want you to trust that it's a word from the Lord. Maybe there's something that you need to get right today with the Lord. Maybe there's some rebuilding in your life that you need to make happen in terms of your spiritual life. Maybe there needs to be more giving on our behalf, not just of our time, but also our money. We, we need help, help wanted. We need people to add to the cleaning roster, the maintenance roster, the audio, the media roster. But not just that. There's many other things. Please just take the time now as the team comes up and just reflect on that and ask yourselves those questions. And what can you do to repent? No good saying, oh yeah, that was a challenging message without repentance. And what do I need to do to repent? So please take your time as the thing comes up.